welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. David Schechter. He's a physician in Culver City, California, with a family and sports medicine practice. He has a unique non-surgical approach to sports medicine and is also the author of Think Away Your Pain, The Mind-Body Workbook, and The Mind-Body Workbook for Teens. Welcome. Thanks, Tom. Hi, David. How are you doing? Hi. Nice to be here. So, David and I go back a long ways, and I have known of him well before I actually met him. Um, He is part of the lineage of Dr. John Starno. He underwent through some chronic pain work himself, such as I did my journey. And so he has promoted these um, the mind-body um, approach for many, many years. And I think both of us have been quite passionate about getting these concepts out into the world because we see people really heal deeply all the time. And as David knows, I was seeing people badly damaged by spine surgery all the time. So I really have followed, David's been an inspiration for me. And David, um, let's just start really quickly in private practice in Culver City, but I will, I'd like to start and end up with some of the things you've developed because David's been a true pioneer in this whole world. He's written some papers, he's written books, he's um, really focused on a lot of things as, as far as healing. What we are gonna focus on today is the um, is teen, adolescent pain and um, people in their 20s, sort of the younger age group. But anyway, David, um, what are some, can you just review some of the workbooks you put together for us? Well, at the time that I wrote the Mind Body Workbook in 1999, there really was very little outside of Dr. Sarno's first, uh, first couple of books for people in the field. And of course, the internet had just, just started up a few years before that. And I felt that journaling, I know that you're very passionate about journaling as a technique, but I, I felt that journaling was very effective for the patients that I was seeing in the office. And although Dr. Sarno had mentioned it in one of his books, he really had not formalized it. So the first thing that I wrote was the Mind-Body Workbook, uh, which is a a 30-day guided journal, giving people prompts and space to write in 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 1999. Since then, that that book has uh, been used by over 35,000 people. So it obviously has helped uh, helped my patients and helped many people who found it on Amazon, the internet, et cetera. Uh, some years later, I wrote the Think Away Your Pain because I felt like I wanted to update some of the concepts and principles. We have a lot more, obviously, understanding of neuroscience uh, uh, than we did when Dr. Sarno wrote his books, which were very Freudian focused. And I also wanted to talk more about uh, more of a treatment approach because Dr. Sarno's books are very much about theory and not as much about treatment. And I'm much more about what can we do to help people. So I talked a lot about treatment and Think Away Your Pain. I also, I had a grant for a few years uh, from a a foundation, published a couple of research papers, some outcome studies. Uh, You know, they, I didn't get the cooperation. As you know, it's difficult to get cooperation from medical centers and and large hospitals. So I didn't get the cooperation that allowed me at that point to do uh, randomized control trials or even functional MRI imaging studies, which I had wanted to do. But I was able to publish a couple of outcome studies that were uh, published in, in referee journals. And then um, come along, you know, the last five, six years, I, I did get interested, as you said, in, in how, how, can we, how can we vaccinate the public against mind-body disorders? You know, you and I have been treating mind-body disorders. Uh, 
I've been doing it for decades and as of you. Um, but, you know, at some point you get tired of treating disease. You want to prevent it. Right. So my thought was if we could get to the adolescents, if we could get to people in school, and if we could expose them to these concepts, that maybe they could leap ahead of their physicians, who, as we know, are very difficult to move or change or, or their right. medical school. And so my concept was to create a curriculum for middle school, high school students uh, and use it uh, for them to, to have exposure to these concepts. It turns out that it coincides well with the fact that schools are becoming a little bit more aware of social emotional learning. It's called SEL. You'll find websites on this subject, et cetera. And also, obviously, there are drug and alcohol problems, unfortunately, in the teenage years. Uh, there's been a epidemic of suicide uh, as well. And then the pandemic has been awful for adolescents. We're going to talk about this some more during the course of the show. And, um, you know, the, all these things made me feel this was very important to, to try to get out to schools. And I've had some success. I'd like to, uh, you know, maybe some teachers are listening or some principals. I'd, lo I'd love to get this work out to more people. Maybe it's something you and I can work on as well, David, in the future. But how do we vaccinate? How do we let the public understand these principles before they get as, uh, as sick as you were or as uh, sick as many of my patients are or, or even before they get to medical school and happen to be lucky and walk into John Sarno's office and get rid of my chronic knee pain, which had developed as a mind-body disorder. Um, more recently, I wrote um, with, with a clinical psychologist the Mind Body Workbook Volume Two, because I figured after 23 years it was time to update it, use some of the, use some more um, of the clinical experience I have and Dr. Barker has, uh, my co-author. And this workbook includes some sections which I'm really excited about because I've been using them with my patients for a number of years, but I haven't had them in my official Mind Body Workbook. So the Volume Two includes a daily affirmation that's pertinent to the topic of the journaling. It also includes one day each week of gratitude journaling. We have a lot of research now that gratitude journaling is very effective in helping mood and stress and all of that. And it has one day a week of what I call self-esteem journaling, which is kind of part of that whole self-care strategy. Self-esteem journaling is writing things you like about yourself, or if you really struggle with this, things that other people like about you. And write, write about that for 10 or 15 minutes in the, uh, in the journal. So by adding more focus on self-compassion, more focus on gratitude and uh, self-esteem. I think we've kind of updated the, the workbook and um, <clears throat> the affirmations are also something that I've used a lot in my practice over the last five or seven years. So <clears throat> that's another feature of that. So been, what, I, yeah. what I'd like to ask you specifically is that the audience that we're talking to knows a lot about the mind-body syndrome and the different terminologies for it about the body and yeah. basically being in a fight or flight and breaking down, et cetera, lots of different reasons why we think it occurs. We also know that chronic stress actually causes disease. We've known that for decades. And so we're now knowing the physiology, knowing why that happens. But what I'm curious about is that you've been at this for a long time, and you actually treated with Dr. Sarno personally. Is that correct? That's correct. That's I met him with <clears throat> knee pain that wasn't going away. Okay. He was not yet known as the guru of mind-body medicine. So I went in there literally, literally for a physical medicine rehab opinion on my problem. Yeah. Okay. What I got was a surprising comment, which is 90% of this chronic pain is psychosomatic. What do you think of that? And that led me down the, the path that I've uh, gone on clinically as well. And then how long were you in, did you have pain before you actually were successfully treated? 
it was most of the first year of med school. So I, I had, uh, I was a big basketball player in college. I won an intramural championship. I can tap myself on the back about that since I'm an nice. old man now. Okay. But um, I, I used, I like to run. Those were my stress relievers, running, running in basketball. And suddenly my knees started to hurt. So what happens when you've got the confluence of the pressures of the first year of med school, a, a move from a campus that was beautiful to a city that was crowded and dusty and dirty, and, and you're getting knee pain, and the things you would normally do to relieve your stress were not available to you running in basketball because it hurts when you, your knees hurt. Right. And you're kind of in a vicious cycle. Right. And so it was about six months or so. I had been through the treatments of uh, student health and, and I saw an orthopedist. He was the Yan New York Yankees team physician at the time. And uh, so I felt, felt he was qualified, but I hadn't gotten better. And then, uh, you know, the Sarno, uh, casual comment he made that and then invited me to one of his seminars because you know he's a busy guy didn't have time that day to do a full consultation but he, his instinct was that I should go down this path and I guess there was enough of me open to it because you know we talk I'm sure your own experience has been openness is an important part of getting people better if you're not open you're not going to go down this path yeah I think openness is actually the only factor I mean if you I mean, the way you pursue the healing principles is, is completely almost infinite. But if you're open and keep exploring and remaining curious, you, you know, you you will find an answer to solve this issue. So in your pain, obviously, disappeared. My pain went away fairly quickly. Now, again, if this is never a comparison thing. I know your your uh, audience has heard this before, but it's not about whether one person gets better in one month and one person gets better in six months. And right. People people constantly come to me and say, well, this person in this book got better this quickly. Why is it taking me this long? Right. Healing is different for everyone. The process is different for everyone. And I was a, a young 21-year-old medical student whose life was simple, albeit stressful, and I was able to get rid of the pain quickly with understanding. I didn't have to go really deep at that point. That's not to say I've never had a TMS symptom again that I've maybe looked at myself in a, in a deeper way as I've gotten more mature. But it went away fairly quickly. And that was very exciting to me because uh, you know, nothing else had worked. Well, the data shows there's a paper out of Boston that shows that only 20% of physicians are comfortable managing chronic pain and then less than 1% enjoy it. And, you know, for both of us, you know, seeing somebody who's been trapped by pain come out of pain is one of the most enjoyable things you can imagine. And, you know, we see it all the time. So what I'd like to focus on at this point is the, what do you think is unique around um, people in their teens and adolescence? Why, why, because I think it's a different group. I think the, they can heal faster, but they also get sicker faster, but there's a lot going on in this age group right now. What I think is a personally a bummer, which I am upset about. I mean, I didn't have a great childhood, but I had the greatest time during my teen years and my twenties and it wasn't until I crashed and burned at age 37 that thing came to, everything came to a screeching halt. So I hate seeing these teens with healthy bodies being so miserable. I mean, what do you think is going on? Well, you know, life is different for everybody. I mean, David, I have a lot of patients who didn't have a great adolescence or didn't like high school or whatever. So, I mean, it, it obviously varies from person to person. But um, look, the, the adolescent period, the period between the, the teenage years, 13 to 19, let's say, it's a tumultuous time. There's a lot of hormonal changes. There's a lot of developmental changes, both physical and psychological that are occurring. The modern world seems to make this really difficult for people. The social media thing is, is, is terrible for teenagers, unfortunately. 
There's all kinds of ways that people can be mean to each other that is even more um, uh, seemingly traumatic than the ways that people were mean to uh, each other when we were high school students. You right. know, I mean, it, it, in some ways, the small town teenage boys having a fight with each other is probably the, I mean, I hate to say this because it's, I'm not an advocate of violence, but it's kind of in some way the best way to release a disagreement. A lot of times these guys were hugging 10 minutes later or they were best friends or shaking hands. It was a release of, a, of, a, of an energy and then it was over. And now right. you have these horrible things. Once something's put on social media, it never disappears usually. It's kind of there forever. Right. And so there's, it's, a, it's a difficult time for teenagers. We have a lot of, we have, people have a lot more opportunities and openness to being a, a variety of different kinds of people now than they used to. But that also makes it difficult and you have more choices. You know, somebody's having fewer choices is simpler. And so there's lots of choices. There's too much time probably spent in front of screens and internet. There's not enough time spent doing what you and I did as teenagers, where they're being playing sports or whether face-to-face -face interaction with people. And that's not to say that I didn't read books or I wasn't a nerd or whatever. I mean, it's still, but I still had friends. I still did things. I still played ball. And um, it's different nowadays. I think people are spending too much time, as we said, with screens and uh, these, these crazy social media things, these uh, viral videos. You know, I, I'm not really a TikTok expert, but I know that the algorithms are set up to suck you into these one video after another, after another. Instagram sort of does the same thing. And I think there's a lot of challenges to being a teenager at any point, and, and, but it's really difficult right now. And so, so yeah. Go ahead. So uh, you, you have a problem with, just call it sensory overload for lack of, a, lack of a better term. And let's say you have somebody in their 40s with you know chronic pain or different anxiety issues, et cetera. I'm guessing, you know, I both said this earlier that the number one factor that allows a good prognosis is openness to new ideas. So I know when you're young, you're open to new, new ideas in a way, but you're also closed to ideas from people that you consider in authority at the same time. It seems like a tricky road to navigate as far as getting them interested in the solution. Well, that's why I think that if you can teach the teachers, because I think most every high school student uh, who's not completely uh, turned off to school, has at least one teacher they respect or relate to. It might be somebody in their mid-20s who's only seven years older than them. Um, but, but the point is that they, if you can teach the teachers, maybe the health education teachers, the um, some of the school psychologists are fairly young and with it and relatable. If you can teach it to people that they can relate to, maybe we can eventually teach it to their peers. You know, there's a lot of more peer peer action stuff going on, uh, suicide hotlines. Maybe we should have a chronic pain hotline for teens right. manned, by, manned by teens that we train. You know, we're brainstorming here today on the podcast. Right. But right. Um, so somebody they could, because you're right, they're not going to relate as well to you or to me. Um, and they might not relate as well to our materials right off the bat because they're presented for adults. But I've tried to create, and I had some help with a young um, fam, marriage and family therapist. I tried to create some... Uh, PowerPoint presentations that could be used by uh, teachers that had visuals and that had little video links to YouTube and things so they could kind of kids could get it on a level that worked for them. So it's going to be a challenge as most of this work is, but trying to find the right people to relate it. Uh, maybe, maybe find a couple of people who've just themselves gotten better. Teens relate well to other teens who've, um, 
maybe who've gone through this process or someone just a couple of years older, like the older brother, older sister age, someone in college who, who gets it. Um, so that's, those are some of the challenges that we absolutely face in presenting this material and then presenting it. You know, we know that like the very early adolescents and, and, the, and the middle school students are just getting into the point where they're at the they're they're able to be abstract thinkers. We learn we we know that abstraction as a method of thinking occurs around 12, 13, 14, depending on people's developmental stages. So, you know, you have to be obviously with children, you have to be more concrete. When you get into adolescence, you, you're able to be more abstract, but you do have to find ways to present it that they can relate it to, maybe using cartoon figures or uh, more video stuff. I've tried to do a little bit of that with my curriculum, but I think there's a lot more that could be done. Um, and as you said, uh, openness. So what makes people open? Now, if you want to talk about actual treatment, because I do actually clinically treat some adolescents in my office and, and people in their early 20s, it, it tends to come down to desperation. And this is a horrible thing because it, we wish that their first doctor had diagnosed them as a as a psychophysiologic disorder, right? As a, as a mind-body syndrome. But maybe that first doctor and three others haven't, and they're kind of getting frustrated. Those are the people I have surprisingly good success with. So someone who is, hasn't found answers elsewhere, as a result, I say they are desperate for a solution. They may right. be more open. Got it. That's what that's what I'm trying to say is that I don't want people to be psychologically desperate, but it's more of an issue of nobody's helping me, doc. But, well, I'm asking you different questions. So that's the thing that we do in this in this world, Dave, is that we we ask different questions than the other physicians by asking different questions, by asking about their childhood, by asking about their their friends, by asking about their peers, their 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 hopes and, and fears for the future suddenly you're opening up a different type of conversation. Right. And that works with adults. And I think it also works with adolescents and people in their early 20s as well. Ask different questions. You'll get different answers and you'll be able to start getting them in the right direction. I, I'm also a big believer in, in planting a seed. So there's people who come in who are not quite ready to embark on the full process. But if you can plant a seed at that point about the idea of a mind-body connection, about the idea of stress playing a role in your health, about the idea of the mind and the brain affecting the body, it may be the two months later or four months later, you know, they'll come back and be open to it. And as you said, openness is crucial to, to moving forward. Right. I mean, what drives us, I have one girl who's 29 right now. She's a good friend of my stepdaughter. And she... Um, has had chronic hip pain for eight years, been bounced around the planet. One surgeon wanted to do these osteotomies of her hip, which is where you basically break the femur in two and change the angle of the hips. And she has a normal hip joint, right? So I started working with her about four months ago and in about eight weeks, she's just simply pain-free, pain's gone. So, I mean, we see this all the time. That's what drives the both of us is that we yeah. see people that are stuck in these holes and the medical system is on a structural basis for, for pathology. And you can't create symptoms out of a parked car. You have to turn the car on. And say with the human body, it's the physiology or the function of the body that allows symptoms or creates symptoms when things aren't functioning right. So I don't know quite how medicine got down this rabbit hole so much of structure, 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 but it's how the body functions is what creates symptoms and disease. Um, 
So with her, it was again, desperation. I think it's, there's another study done years ago, which showed between over an eight year span, there was a, I'm sorry, a 10 year span in the eighties that the instance of chronic pain went up 810% in teens. And I gave a lecture at a high school in Seattle years ago. And so out of 1500 students at Garfield High School in Seattle, there was over 30% um, of them were on chronic medications that they had to be dispensed every day at school. Mm -hmm. And so it was just brutal watching, watching the amount of chronic pain. So the bottom line is, I think we're both saying, and what I want to do in the second podcast is talk some details. I want to pretend to be that adolescent and some of the things that we do to help adolescents particularly. I might tell you one thing I've learned, which is, first of all, it's hard to get the adolescents to engage because again, we're authority people who tend to resist. But I sort of separate them from their parents, which is a little tricky. Have you had that same experience? Yeah, I mean, I try to, in general, involve the parents, but also get time alone with the uh, with the younger person. Uh -huh. Some of that might depend on age. Uh, if they're 18 and above, I, I really will look at them and say, um, do you want your parent here with you? Or would you be more comfortable just talking to me alone? And, and I kind of give them that opportunity. Often they're looking over their shoulder and stuff. Another, so I have other ways of compromise. So I say, how about if we meet alone, but then at the end, when I come up with my conclusions and I talk to you about the plan, we, we invite your mom or dad back in. So that can be another way to do that. Right. But I do try, I agree with you. You have to have some time alone with the adolescent. And even, you know, I, I am board certified in family medicine. So over the years, I've seen a younger people, not so much lately, but uh, if I see a 12, 13, 14 year old first uh, patient, which again, I'm not doing so much in my general practice anymore, but um, even at that age, I, I usually will say to them, uh, and they're usually with their parent, of course, but I'll say, can we have a few minutes alone before, you know, before your, your mom or dad comes back? And everybody's usually okay with it because I want to ask them about sexuality. I want to ask them about alcohol or drugs or something. And maybe they'd be more comfortable talking to me without the parents. So I, I try to do that. So I agree with you about separating at some point, if not the whole time. So David, we'll talk about this a lot in the second podcast as far as the actual treatment approach, but just to review, you have um, my body workbook, two volumes, but I'm assuming volume two is what you're having in the market. Um, you does have a nice book called Think Away Your Pain, also the Mind Body Workup Workbook. And then he has a diagnostic guide. He's part of the author of the Diagnostic Guide for Psychophysiologic Disorders. Um, but the main thing he's developed is Mind Body Workup for Teens. And so um, a lot going on. And then do you have a website, David, that you can be reached at? Mindbodymedicine.com. Okay. Has a good contact page. And you're in Culver City in the Los Angeles Basin, right? Correct. Where's Culver City, by the way, exactly? It's Culver City is between Santa Monica, Marina del Rey, okay. and Los Angeles. Yeah. Okay. And what percent of your practice, I know you used to, what percent of your practice is dealing with these mind-body disorders? Hard to estimate. It varies from week to week. Um, in some ways, once you're a mind-body doctor, you're thinking about every patient in, in, right. to a certain degree differently. But I think as a 25% is a is is a good estimate of the of the core mind-body uh, group. Okay. So to summarize, um, David Schechter has been really a pioneer in looking at the whole body as a whole, looking at the person as a whole. 
And if you allow people to calm down and de-stress, well, your body really knows how to heal itself is what we're trying to guide people towards. So he's written some books, resources. He's a great resource in the Los Angeles area. He's also developed a set of resources around him to help um, people out. So, you know, chronic pain is complicated. It usually takes a multi-pronged approach. And I honestly have thought for many years that family practitioners are probably the best answer for chronic pain in general. I think much better than psychologists because there's so many things you have to deal with in chronic pain, like sleep, diet, education, all sorts of other things. So, you know, psychology is part of it, but there's so many other factors to deal with that I honestly think that family practice is the home run for actually dealing with chronic pain. Yeah, the challenge is getting it into the residency programs and, and teaching them. I've been, I've been fortunate to give a few lectures over the last year and at different residency programs, and uh, one or two residents have has asked to come and spend time in my office and see what I do. Yes. But I would love I'd love to get to do more of that. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Okay, Dave. Well, thank you. I appreciate you being on the podcast, and uh, yeah, great work. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. David Schechter, for being on the program today and sharing the evolution of his mind-body practice, and in particular, his work with teens. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today, and join us next week for Back in Control Radio. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.